Welcome back to Single Minded, where we are flipping the script on being single. I'm your host, Hannah First. And I'm your co-host, Linda. I saw something on the Channel 9 news the other day, which reminded me of all our chats we've been having on flexibility around work. Yes. So I don't know if you've seen it, but New South Wales are trialling a shake-up of school hours. Oh. It's led by their Premier, father of seven, no judgment, so he said that the traditional nine to three school day, just like the nine to five work day, is a 20th century concept, which may not be the best model for 21st century families and schools. So they want to explore options to help families who are juggling work, family life yep. with school hours. And I have to say it was a real struggle getting you three to school oh. by 8.30. It was unbelievable. Yeah. And I would have much preferred even just a 9.30 start, which would have seen me get to work at around 10. So I thought that was interesting that it's sort of leaking into all aspects of life. What are they going to trial though? How does that? Uh, I think they're trialling seven till one and then the other one was 11 to five, something like that. So it's just a trial. I think the teachers will still work their normal hours because they'll probably there'd be an uproar, but they're offering like different activities for kids so that if you're trying to juggle work and you want to drop them off later, and I thought that was a really good idea. It's not set in stone and only some schools, there's just like a small trial, but yeah, sounded like a great idea. On that note, I remember I was honestly one of the brightest kids. You would be running 10 minutes late because you worked full time. You worked full time. And if you ever ran late, I I am impatient. I'm sorry. I'm trying hard not to be. We may have seen that yesterday. (laughs) Wait, what was yesterday? Oh, well, you were going on a hike with Rob and he couldn't get his shit together and you were getting I antsy. I was so antsy. And do you know what? I felt really bad because then we went for dinner and we parked at like the supermarket where like chemist warehouses and stuff. And I said, oh, I'll drop you home and then I'll, I need to go to the pharmacy and get a few things. And he was like, just go do it now. I'll sit in the car. And he sat in the car for 20 minutes. And go. I felt so bad because I had been like, What's going on? Like, why is it taking him so long? And the worst is he's had a bit of a return of asthma and he was trying to find his (laughs) ventil and he goes, what have you done with a ventil? And I said, calm down. What is it? And he goes, oh, Hannah's in such a rush. (laughs) You really had him stressed out. So. Yes. No, I feel bad. Patience. Looking back, I do want to offer you like my sincerest apologies <laughs> 20 years too late. Was to that say, getting to school or picking you up after picking school? Picking me up from school. You'd be 10 oh, minutes late, yes. maybe longer. And I would be Ripeable. so annoyed. <laughs> and it's so funny because it's not like I'm always on time. It's just, do you know what it is? I'm quick. I'm quick to get ready. I'm quick to get out the door. And that's why I don't like just sitting when I'm ready to go. It wasn't like anything else much was happening yesterday afternoon. (laughs) Now, just something else I have to recommend to you. You won't have seen it. A series on SBS called Sissy. It is Bridgerton on steroids. Sex? More sex? Uh, Yes. It's got – the only thing is it's got subtitles because it's German. I do puzzles in front of the TV. 
Well, I was going to say if you're over 55, you've probably already got subtitles on all the time anyway. So it's based on the life of this amazing woman, Empress Elizabeth of Austria, very much a free spirit who ended up marrying an emperor, Franz Mm -hmm. Joseph, when she was only 16. So it's very romantic, lots of drama some stunning costumes and we just binge watched it over a couple of nights cannot wait for season two you got to watch it i'm actually looking the photos do look pretty sexy okay oh yes oh i mean everyone's pretty good looking in it i have to say emperor franz joseph has the most incredible eyes i've ever seen mesmerizing so there you go there's a tip Nice. I'm trying to think if I've watched anything good at the moment. Did you see, by the way, Selena Gomez on SNL? No, I haven't seen that yet. So (laughs) she said, one reason I'm really excited to host SNL is because I'm single and I've heard SNL is a great place to find romance. (laughs) That's actually probably true because the after parties. I'm Mm. trying to think, what on earth have I been doing at night? I've actually been pretty busy. You know me, I don't like being busy, too busy, but Mm. I've been working. I think by the time this episode comes out, I'll have already posted it, but the speed dating is coming. I cannot (laughs) wait for that. So a couple of things. It's like I've had all these ideas. So first of all, we're doing speed dating and the tagline, which I'm so proud of that I came up with it, is (laughs) because they can't ghost you in real life. And then what I'm also doing is I'm creating, I've actually decided to make dating questions. It's going to be like a hundred questions that will help you kind of look for deeper connection because I'm really freaking sick of the, hey, how are you? What do you do for work? That's kind of what people talk about a lot. And I feel like- They need help. I feel like let's open up the questions. And I'm actually, I just was reading some out to Linda. What do you think of them? Just as a little- I love them. And we'll we'll have to answer some here. We'll answer some on on an upcoming (laughs) episode, but I'm just hoping that that will really like break the ice and help people to like- Talk about something else that isn't materialistic. So really like get deeper on your values and what do you want from your life? And then you can Mm. kind of gauge within five minutes like, oh, okay, we're aligned on that. Like I'd like to chat more. That said, had I asked Rob how many times he changed his sheets in a month, I would never have dated him had (laughs) I got his response. (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the questions on there. Okay, well, today we are talking about not dating, actually. It's more about existential crises and death anxiety because I think that a lot of what we talk about on here is about following your own path and creating like a meaningful life for yourself in addition to all the dating content. So this is something very close to my heart. You know that, mum, don't you? I do. Who did I say to? I said it to dad yesterday on the walk. We were talking about someone that was really unhappy in their job. And I was like, God, why would you bother doing that? Like, you're going to die soon. Like, why not just quit that job and do something that make you know, people that stay in like miserable, stressful jobs. So Mm. I've never understood that because I'm just like, oh my God, you only have such a short period of time to enjoy life. So. Happy note. Always on my mind. All right. (laughs) We will be back later to get your thoughts. (laughs) 
So I'm very excited to welcome Rachel Menzies to the podcast. She is a clinical psychologist and postdoctoral researcher at the University of Melbourne. Sorry. Oh, my God. That's right. <laughs> no, I, I don't know to, if I should jump I, in. <laughs> I went to uni- University of Sydney. <laughs> And today we are talking about death anxiety. So excited. I feel like it's quite a niche topic, but it's really weird. I brought up my own death anxiety on an episode. It was about quitting my job and changing my life because I'd been getting these night terrors. And I had all these messages from people saying like, oh my God, I have that too. And I just thought it was such a niche thing that not many people dealt with, but apparently it's more common than I thought it was. So we are here to talk about death anxiety. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Hannah. It's a little bit of a, it's sort of a morbid topic, but not really, because I actually think it can be turned into positives. Well, it has definitely turned into a positive for me, but let's get started with what is death anxiety? So death anxiety is really a pretty broad umbrella term to capture negative feelings people might have about death. So it might be worries about their own death. It could be worries about other people's deaths. So some people will say, I'm pretty calm about the idea of me dying, but you know, I'm dreading the fact that I'm going to lose a parent or my partner and so on. And all of that would come under that umbrella of death anxiety, whether it's being anxious about your own death, other people's death, the dying process itself, so pain associated with dying, or just generally the idea of non-existence. So in my case, it's the generally the idea of non-existence. And I have, I remember I had girls around for dinner and we were playing like a card game. And one of the cards was like, do you fear death and why? Or something like that. And everyone at the table seemed pretty comfortable with the idea of dying. And I was like, are you guys crazy? Do you <laughs> understand what that means? Like, do you actually even understand that you no longer exist? And I can't relate to people that are fine with it. And there was another question, like, if you could be immortal, would you be? And I said, yes. And everyone said no. And I was like, I felt like the odd one out. Is it more common than than people think? Or is it common with certain ages, do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question, Hannah. So it's it's very common. Essentially, by the end of the first decade of life, so by the time kids turn 10, all children have some fairly mature understanding of death. So by the time they're 10, children understand that all living things die, that they'll die one day, and they understand that once you die, you can't come back to life and so on and so on. And then the rest of their life essentially is devoted to trying to grapple with that idea and come up with some kind of solution. So when people say, I feel really relaxed about death, it's probably because they've managed to deal with that fear even if that's on an unconscious level. So they might have unconsciously dealt with the fear of death by building up a legacy, striving for achievements at work, striving to be seen as someone who's doing well in the eyes of their community, for example, or trying to extend their self through having children, you know, creating other things that will outlast them. So as humans, there's a lot of evidence to say that all of us are unconsciously dealing with this fear of death in our day-to-day lives, Mm. but that for some people, those unconscious strategies just don't seem to be working. And that's Mm. when people might present to treatment, for example, to try and address their fears of death. In terms of age as well, you're also asking, that's another really good question where typically people tend to get more anxious about death as they reach around middle age. And then interestingly, the closer people get to death, so people who are in their 
60s, 70s, 80s tend to actually get more and more accepting of death and less fearful of Mm. it the closer it gets. So just from my experience, Mm. I, I was in therapy very early, I would say from 21. So 12 years ago, I think I started therapy and I did talk a lot about the death anxiety And my therapist actually suggested this existential psychiatrist and I started reading some of his books. And I remember that as time went on, I was like, no one can really help me with this. This is just something I have to deal with. And actually, I didn't want to stress out my current therapist because like anytime you talk about it with people, they're like, oh, and then you remind them about (laughs) that's how I feel. I'm like, I don't want to stress him out. I don't want to burden him with this because he's going to die too. You know, that's sort of my, that was my Mm. thinking. As a sort of clinical psychologist, how do you treat it? And like, does it ever affect you? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I think actually probably a lot of patients or clients resonate with that feeling of not wanting to talk to their therapist about it for that exact same reason. And also a lot of the research we have on treatments for fears of death is actually very recent. So really in the last no more than a decade, probably the last five or so years has been where the bulk of research has come out looking at what treatments work for fears of death. So a lot of therapists also just haven't been trained in how to manage these fears because it's such a recent topic in clinical psychology anyway. So in terms of what treatments tend to look like for fears of death, the most effective treatment is what's called cognitive behaviour therapy or CBT. CBT in general is the gold standard treatment for things like anxiety, depression, and CBT for fears of death is really looking at people's beliefs about death. So beliefs like it's going to be awful to not exist one day or life is too short, those sorts of beliefs that can make people quite anxious about death. And it's also targeting behaviours. So people might be doing things to try and cope with that fear that might be unhelpful. Mm. So avoidance is the really big one where most of us avoid things that make us uncomfortable. We don't like to feel anxious. So we might avoid talking about death. We might push thoughts of death away. But actually, this tends to keep us feeling more and more anxious about it. So essentially, in a nutshell, the main treatments for helping people overcome their fears of death is to help change people's perspectives on death. And also to get them actually facing the fear rather than what most of us do, which is moving away from the thing that makes us anxious. Mm. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about, we did talk briefly about like middle age, that being a potential trigger, and then it's sort of going away. I feel like I came to middle age earlier and I was sort of having like, I call them night terrors. Mm. I don't really experience this much during the day because I'm busy, but definitely at night, just before falling asleep, it really hits me. And it's like this panic and I call it existential night terrors. But I do find it happens when I'm really unfulfilled and I'm like on this hamster wheel of life and I don't really have feel that I have much meaning. Do you think that people get to middle age and maybe they've been, they feel like they've maybe been sleepwalking the last few years and it kind of hits them that like, like how does that sort of relate to middle age and is there any link to not having enough meaning in your life? Yeah. So I think people can have those kinds of moments at any time in their life, but it certainly seems to be most common in middle age. 
and whether that's because that's when people first start to notice those signs of aging they might start Mm. to notice wrinkles gray hairs which are those sort of hard to miss reminders of mortality (laughs) whether that's a change in role whether that's this is when people are starting to think more about starting a family or what their family looks like or their career there could be a whole number of things but I think in my mind that idea of aging starting to becoming quite Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say quite obvious more obvious around that that time is probably the big part and I think your point about meaning is also something that probably a lot of people can relate to that if we can find a sense of purpose in our day-to-day activities we're probably going to feel more content with the idea that it's all going to end one day whereas if we're moving through life not really feeling like we're doing anything purposeful, like we're not achieving as much as we'd like to, we're probably going to be a little more vulnerable to those fears of death. Mm. And so there's that death anxiety and then there's also kind of like most people would have heard about an existential crisis. How do they differ and like what is an existential crisis? So an existential crisis, I guess, is just one way of referring to any time someone is really struggling with what we would call the big givens of existence. So these would be things like struggling to find a sense of purpose, you know, the idea that life doesn't have any inherent meaning to it. It's really up to us to create what we feel is meaningful. So that could be one existential crisis. It could be questions about identity. Who am I? Who do I want to be? That could come up in an existential crisis. And even just the idea of the infinite number of choices we might face in life Mm. can cause an existential crisis. So the existential philosophers wrote about the idea that freedom, they said man is condemned to be free. We're condemned to be free to make any choice we want in life, which it's quite a difficult thing to do. Mm. So existential crisis will usually have that kind of feeling of questioning identity or purpose or what choices you want to make in life. And so it can happen in middle age. It can happen in almost in adolescence where people are starting to really grapple with who am I? What do I want to do in my life? Yeah, I think I've, I feel like I've had a few. <laughs> when I sort of had that, it was just like, It's a real overwhelming feeling that life is short and I'm living in a way to like satisfy other people or I'm doing what Mm. society has like set out for me and I don't feel right about it and I feel suffocated and I feel like I'm not living for me. And I think that then pushes me into like every night, you know, feeling like time is running out and I'm wasting my time doing something I don't even want to do. And It comes up a lot when work is just like, you know, you're just working towards the next promotion, but you don't even know why Mm. and you just feel empty inside. And I do hear a lot of people say that to me, that it's kind of like this empty pursuit of something that you're not even sure that you want. And that's Mm. when it really like pushes me to make a change. And I did want to ask you that, you know, in your experience, are these kind of crises, do they lead to people changing their lives? Yeah, look, I think they definitely have the potential to do that, that if I can look at what I'm doing and really ask myself, is this the kind of life I want to live, it opens up that doorway to live to live differently and make different choices. So myself and my father, who's also a clinical psychologist, published a book last year called Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society. And in it, we talk a lot about how 
the way most of us cope with the fear of death is essentially through doing what our society tells us to do. So I, as an individual, am going to die, but my society, my culture is going to outlast me. And so I'm going to try and live a big, rich life in the eyes of my culture. So if I live in a culture which values money and materialistic mm-hmm. success, then I'm going to be striving for that next paycheck. I'm going to want to live in the nicest house, on the nicest street, buy expensive cars or nice handbags. I'm going to do these things so that when I die, I feel like people will remember me fondly because I did what culture expected me to do. And sometimes that works, but sometimes that doesn't. And people end up feeling like, what am I doing with my life? Why am I working myself to the bone when I don't really care about this? And so in the book, we really pushed this idea of authenticity, that trying to figure out what do I really want deep down? And can I try and take that quite you know, scary step of doing things that I really care about rather than doing things that my culture wants me to do? And often that can come out of an existential crisis where people can Mm. take that brave step and actually something quite beautiful and profound can come out of something that was quite terrifying. Yes, I really, I really do relate to that. So we kind of touched on this really briefly. This podcast also pushes this a lot is about creating more meaning. Do you think that creating more meaning and I, I, I love what you said about living an authentic life. Do you think that helps people? Like, I think in my case, this is never going to go away. And maybe some people listening can relate to that. I don't think like this is the human condition. Like mm. I'm almost at an acceptance point that this is, I'm going to die. And and it's that is a scary thought. But the more meaning that I make and the more that I spend time feeling like I am living a life that I'm happy and proud of, it feels more manageable. Do you think that... Yeah, do you think that creating more meaning can help people face that fear of death? Definitely. So there's a lot of there's a lot of research to say that people who have found more meaning in life tend to feel a lot more comfortable with death. And again, you know, meaning is often something you have to create yourself. It's not usually there for you on a platter, but it might be looking for what gives me a sense of meaning and how can I get more of that in my life? I um, did a values exercise. That was sort of the first step for me. Is there anything like that that you recommend that people, like where where can they kind of start to, to really navigate what's authentic and what's not? Mm. So values exercises are really good places to start. So I imagine you'd find some online. Essentially what those involve are just a long list of things that people could value. So for example, creativity, independence, stability, charity, And then essentially ranking them to figure out what's most important to me. It can be really tricky to figure out what do I really deep down value versus what do I think is the thing I should be valuing here? What did my Mm. parents value? And do I need to have the same values as them? But if you can ask yourself, if no one were watching, would I still value this thing? So if no one were watching, if no one cared would I really be working the hours that I'm working, for example? Would I really be dating this person or pursuing this if there were no one around to see? And sometimes that kind of question can help us get at, are we doing this in some way for other people or are we really doing this because it feels authentic to us? It was funny because I did one online that actually made you answer a series of questions before you started. So it was like, 
when were you the happiest? When did you feel the most Mm. fulfilled? And I then had to reflect back on like, and it was funny looking at all the things that made me happy and fulfilled. None of them was like about, oh, I got that promotion and I was so happy. None of that Mm. was on there. And then I went into the values. Once you've kind of got those and you feel comfortable with them, and I actually redid it like two years later to make sure that and it was, it was pretty much exactly the same. And I find that making decisions becomes easier. It's not easy to make decisions always on those values, but it's easier knowing like, okay, mm. is that going to align? Definitely. I'm really interested to know why, gives me a bit of hope. It really interested to know why people like in their 60s become more comfortable with the idea. In my mind, it's going to get worse in my 60s, not better. yeah and that's often what people think particularly when they're young and healthy and particularly if they're anxious about death their anxiety will tell them well if I'm anxious now god what's it going to be like when I'm 70 I'm going to be just riddled with anxiety which is what our anxiety likes to do it likes to tell us that worst case scenario but actually all of the evidence says the opposite that the people who are most calm are the people who are in their 70s and 80s And there's a number of possible reasons for that. One is that by the time you've reached that age, you've experienced a lot more death. So you've you've lost people you care about. You've gone to many more funerals. You've had more of an opportunity to see death as natural and normal by the time you've had all of those experiences. And the other is that typically the people who are most anxious about death, people who are fairly young in fairly good health, Whereas by the time people get to their 70s and 80s, typically their quality of life isn't quite as good as it was when they were younger. They might be in pain. They might be very tired. They might have growing health conditions. And so the idea of death doesn't seem quite as catastrophic as it does when you're in the peak of your health and life. There's this concept which is known as escape acceptance, meaning that I accept death because I see it as an escape from the current conditions of my life, this pain, this agony. And that tends to be higher in people who are older. So those are some of the reasons why we might be seeing this this reduction in anxiety as people actually get older. There's a girl I follow on Instagram. She's actually got terminal cancer. And one of the quotes that she had from her psychologist was, like while you're dying, don't forget to live. And mm. and she actually said that's actually true of everyone. And I have found this. I'm like, I think about this so much that that sometimes you forget, well, you still need to like make the most of life in the meantime. Do you think people get very caught up in the anxiety of it and they're kind of unable to actually go and live? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, particularly the people who are seeking treatment have usually gotten to a point where their anxiety has really gotten in the way of their life, where Mm. it's gotten in the way of them enjoying time with loved ones, doing things they'd like to be doing. And it can be really easy to do to let that anxiety get the better of us. One thing that I think can often be helpful in that area is flipping almost the idea of death on its head. So, Richard Dawkins in his book, Unweaving the Rainbow, opens with this beautiful opening where he says, we are going to die and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. And he talks Mm. about this idea of how unlikely our existence is, that for you to be born, your parents had to meet, they had to mate, and they had to produce the exact 
sequence of DNA that would have produced you. Their mm. parents had to meet and reproduce, their parents had to meet and re reproduce, and so on and so on for thousands and thousands of years. And if any one person in your string of ancestors died, got sick, before they had a chance to meet their mate and reproduce, or if any mm. of them had recoupled, if your dad had met a different woman before he met your mom and coupled with her, you would never have been here. And so, you know, someone was going to be here in your place, but it didn't have to be you, it didn't have to be me. And so if we can kind of flip the idea of death on its head and think about the fact that it's less than a one in a billion chance that I would be here today, that you would be here today, it can make the idea of death seem almost silly to feel ripped off that I, I shouldn't have to die. Well, I shouldn't have even been born in the first place. And so sometimes that can actually help us cultivate just gratitude for the fact that we're mm. here in the first place rather than feeling, you know, ripped off or upset that it's going to end one day. That sounded so much like a conversation I had with my dad because him and I are very similar and I we were on a walk one night and I said, why don't you care? Like, don't you? He's in his 60s. Why don't you like, like, why isn't this bothering you? Why don't you have anxiety about it? And he had studied philosophy when he was young he's like I made peace with all of this when I was young and he just said you know similar like you get to be conscious for all of this and like the chances of mm. that happening were slim to none and so you should appreciate that you get to be conscious for all of this because you you're right the chances that you get to be here and experience the world is rare mm. yeah I think your dad summed it up really nicely and that you know, however long we get to live is very unlikely, particularly if you look at human history, that most people, if we were to look at ancient Rome, for example, you and I would probably have been dead years mm. ago. The average mm. person was not living very long. Only 50% of kids made it to the age of 10. So to be upset at the idea that it's all going to end one day or whether I live to 80, whether I die tomorrow, it's missing that perspective of how most of humans have lived for thousands of years. Mm. And also like the fact that in this day and age, you get to go and see so many parts of the world. Like, mm. and the, I think you're right about the gratitude stuff. That's a great tip. Even you saying that has just like made me smile to think about it. I've personally found, I read a book called Staring at the Sun, Irvin Yolom. I read that like 12 years ago and I've read it again since then. I found that really helpful. Do you have any other books or resources that you can suggest? There's not that much out there it's kind of not like a really I haven't found it to be a topic where I can just like like self-help there's like a million self-help books about it yeah yeah you're right it's again it's, it's surprisingly recent given that mm. humans have been dying for a very long time <laughs> if I can kind of gratuitously self-promote of course <laughs> <laughs> so we brought out the book Mortals last year, which I mentioned. So Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society, which really goes through all of the ways that humans have unconsciously tried to deal with this fear and how to cultivate a more helpful relationship with death. If you were wanting something a bit more in a self-help style, I also just brought out another book, I think a month or two months ago, which is called Free Yourself from Death Anxiety. So that's a CBT-based self-help guide to overcoming fears of death so that's much more I guess you know interactive with exercises and worksheets and that sort of thing otherwise the stoics for anyone who is interested in philosophy the stoic philosophers of ancient Greece and Rome wrote a lot about death 
mm-hmm. the writings of Seneca are particularly easy to read and quite beautifully written. So if people were interested in reading something that's, you know, an, an ancient text, Seneca offers really beautiful perspectives on death that I think a lot of us can still learn from today. So those would be the main things. There's also the death positive movement, which some people might have heard of, which is founded by a woman called Caitlin Doherty. So she has a couple of books and she also has a website and a YouTube channel and so on. So she talks generally about death and and different approaches to death around the world and that sort of thing. So some listeners might also be interested in some of her work too. Well, great. This was such a good chat. You've really brightened up my day with that last little tip about (laughs) the chances of us being here right now. Thank you so much for joining me. It was great to chat. Thanks so much for having me, Hannah. Linda, what did you think? So did you know death anxiety is also known? It's got a very funny name, and I hope I pronounce this right, thanatophobia. (laughs) Have you ever heard of that? The extreme fear of death or the dying process causing severe anxiety symptoms. Interesting. And I agree because I checked on the analysis and the fear of death grows in the first half of life, but by the time we hit 61 to 87 age group, that's me, it recedes to a sort of more manageable level, which I relate to because I definitely had a form of death anxiety where I would wake up with a real start thinking, I cannot believe this life will end one day and I, I... I will cease to exist. So that was my anxiety. I can't believe of all people, you don't think that deeply, Linda. I'm surprised that that woke you up. And I would say now it's just so mild. I barely sort of have that thought. Of course, I don't want life to ever end. But that said, most people who have had children would prefer to go first. And I think a lot less about it now than I used to. Okay. That's good for me to know. Knowing my temperament, knowing how I am, I don't think I'll ever reach that stage of life, but it's good to know. I just look up to someone like the Queen who's oh. had some pretty major scandals, but she's <laughs> she's 96 and was until recently very active. And, yes, she's lost her husband, but all her offspring are alive, her four children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, and that's probably how I'd like to finish up. Well, lucky for you, touch wood, you don't ever get sick. Well, we shouldn't say that. So we're hoping that you're strong like an ox. That's always how I think of you. You're strong like an ox. (laughs) God. I think a healthy fear of death also reminds us to make the most of our time here on earth and don't take your relationships or actually what you have for granted. So that's my Mm, thought on that, my two cents. One of the authors that I really love on this topic, his name is Irvin Yalom. He's an existential psychiatrist. He works at, he's a professor of psychiatry at Stanford Mm -hmm. University and he's written quite a lot of books, but he also wrote, it's called Staring at the Sun, which is actually his book about death anxiety. Not only do, do his clients have death anxiety, but he himself has it and he's worked in this field. He's pretty incredible. And I had I have his latest book, A Matter of Death and Life, and basically it is him and his wife who were married for 
a bazillion years. Um, they were married a long time. But anyway, it's an account of their last months together written mm. alternately. So she had terminal cancer mm. and it's like this year-long look at the last months of their life together and then how he lived on knowing that he was also facing mortality because he's in his 80s. He might even be, let me check how old he is now. He's still alive. I just lo- I love him. I love the way he So he's 90 actually. Mm. So his wife died in 2019. Yeah, it's a really amazing book. But I actually have written one of my favorite quotes on like one of the quotes in the book I've written on the jacket. So it says, the more unlived your life, the greater your death anxiety. So I think that was one of his. Really? Yeah. So here I'll read a little bit from the book. So of all the ideas I've employed to comfort patients dreading death, none has been more powerful than the idea of living a regret-free life. Marilyn, his wife, and I both feel regret-free. We've lived fully and boldly. We were careful not to allow opportunities for exploration to pass us by and now have left little remaining unlived life. And then just one more quote on the same page. So he quotes, 2,000 years ago, Seneca said, a man cannot stand prepared for death if he has just begun to live. We must make it our aim to have already lived enough. And then Nietzsche Nietzsche is. Yeah, Nietzsche. <laughs> I know. I just never say it out loud. The most powerful of all phrase makers said, living safely is dangerous. Oh, mm. chills. So the book just has so many little gems in it that really make you stop and think a little bit because he's at the end of his life and this is what he's, his whole life has been about. I don't know what that's going to be like. The other thing is, in past generations, there was sort of death was all around mm-hmm. before medicine improved. You know, mothers would die in childbirth, babies wouldn't make it, and we're a bit insulated because it's not sort of everywhere. And mm-hmm. I don't know, most people probably haven't seen a dead body. And the first time I saw one was Audrey, my great aunt, who was 92, and then my father, and it actually scared the shit out of me. That's it. You're just lying <laughs> there. Yeah, I know. But you're no longer here. <laughs> and I don't, whether I lived a full life or not, that is a scary confrontation. And I also think it helps if you are religious. But if you're like me, maybe you as well, and don't believe in anything, there's no afterlife for me, no God, no purpose, that's a bit challenging because it's hard to see the meaning of life and what's the point. But I was going to say for me it's just being happy, having good experiences, always cherishing my family and try to remember to be kind every day, do one nice deed every day. Well, I did want to actually, there was one more bit that I wanted to read out. She is looking into physician-assisted suicide and Ooh. he really reminds her or he he says, I keep reminding her of all the precious moments she is still experiencing, the fun we had the other night searching the TV apps for a good Japanese film. Sounds like you and Dad, except you don't watch Japanese films. <laughs> We've got into a bit of Korean, but yes. <laughs> okay. So he says, our precious moments simply holding hands. Hmm. Think of <laughs> think of these moments, I then say to her. Think of how blessed we are to experience this precious consciousness. I love every minute of it. <laughs> we'll never, oh, I'm going to cry. We'll never have another shot at it. How can you just toss mm. it away? Oh, it really hits you right where it hits you hard. So I really recommend that book if you are struggling with this stuff or you you need some, some wisdom from someone that's a lot older than we are. 
Do you know something else I've realised? You know, some people buy, this is totally random, some people have plots for oh, their... Oh, yes. So that is something I will not talk about, <laughs> I don't want to know about, I will never buy. Okay. I just, I, I can't, I can't get my head around it anyway. Maybe you need to read this book, Linda. I don't think I want to read it. Okay. I just think I want to keep... Living and trying to be and happy, and that's the difference between you and me. That's the difference, right? Not there. think about it. Go as long as I possibly can. <laughs> All right, everyone. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. If you made it this far, I'm hoping that you enjoyed the podcast. If you could subscribe and leave a five-star rating and review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps other people find the podcast. Not that I'm desperate or anything. 